we'd like to welcome you to the Institute's Leading Edge, a show dedicated to helping the automotive aftermarket service industry. In today's episode, our panel is going to talk about what makes a premium service premium. Here's what's coming up. It's the attitude you take and the time to look over the client's vehicle and treat them as if it was your vehicle. You know, my dad always said that, you know, when we bring a client in, you basically, we're treating the vehicle as if it was our own. You know, we would, we preach what we do and, you know, we do our own brake flushes, our own vehicles, and we recommend customers, clients do the brake flushes on their vehicles, you know? So, you know, basically it's, it's treating, I, I believe it's treating clients' vehicles as if they were your own vehicles. You know, I don't want to get stuck and I don't want to have to change my ABS module or my transmission because I didn't lack doing services that you should have done when you were changing your oil and doing your brakes and stuff like that. For a better business, a better life, and a better industry, the Institute's Leading Edge. Welcome to the uh, Leading Edge, episode 31. Today we're going to discuss premium service. And um, excuse me one second. Not yet. So, sorry, I'm sitting in a hotel room and the maid just happened to knock on the door just as we were getting going. Uh, that's how things happen. <clears throat> Live TV. Uh, we're, with us is uh, Kelly Shelton from the shop. Hey, Kelly, thanks for coming. Hey. Um, uh, Tom Lambert from Shade Tree Automotive uh, and Andrew Knudsen from Coventry Motors. Uh, hey, Andrew, where is uh, Coventry at? Where's the shop? So we're based uh, in Huntington Station in New York, so just okay. uh, on Long Island. So. On Long Island. Okay, Long I should Island. have picked that up. <laughs> yep. I want to apologize for all the uh, those of that are going to watch this. Uh, uh, we, we missed last week due to some uh, some technical uh, uh, issues, so this is the makeup. Um, let's talk about premium service. Uh, there was an interesting thing that uh, uh, Kent put together, uh, some statistical data. Fewer than one-third um, of people that were asked uh, said that a premium service product is defined by it being expensive. Instead, they gave attributes such as products having a superior design, coming from a well-known or trusted brand, and offering or doing something no other product provides. Uh, those are more likely to be associated with the term premium. Also, it says that millennials are more likely than older counterparts to pay a premium for a variety of attributes, including green, uh, including the product containing organic or all natural ingredients, and uh, if it's environmentally friendly or it has uh, sustainable materials. I'm not sure how that applies to automotive. I guess it does in some ways. Uh, when asked to identify which of several attributes uh, made a premium product, 54% of respondents around the world cited its production with high quality materials or ingredients, while another 46 pointed out its offering of superior function or performance. So uh, let's start with you, Tom. Tom, how, how do you define uh, a premium product? Well, premium to me uh, is based off value. Um, we don't like to talk price much, right? We like to talk value. So. Uh, premium product or premium service uh, is uh, kind of going above and beyond uh, giving people uh, customer experience, uh, customer service experience that uh, kind of creates that wow factor, kind of blows them away. So they're uh, not only do they come back, but they're uh, super excited to go tell all their friends and family about how nice you treated them. That's kind of how I would uh, define a premium service. Okay. Um, Kelly, let's let's have you define uh, premium service. Uh, if you could add to what Tom said, or it not. I mean, a lot of what he said makes sense. I think it it starts with the initial contact. You know, it's 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 everything from the first time that I mean, the first time they see your presence. You know, the first time they even find out about you or hear about you, and then the first time they talk to you and how you, you know, how you interact with them through the way that they're treated, um, to the time they pick up their car. It's like that that whole experience is, you know, that's the service. It's, it's not the act of fixing the car. It's, uh, it's everything from start to finish. And, you know, every little thing that plays in between is, you know, what sort of defines your brand and makes it that upper echelon of you know, that higher tier product. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think that kind of adds even a dimension that I had, I was not thinking about. I probably, if I sat here long enough, I could, but 
you know, um, the concept that premium starts with an idea and, and kind of has to permeate everything in your, in your product. Um, Andrew, I'm going to have you do the same thing. Uh, uh, what, what, what is your definition of uh, premium? Uh, I like what Kelly and Tom said. I mean, just to add on that a little bit, I mean, I was thinking about it last week and basically it's just taking the time to address all the little detailed things and basically making sure the customer doesn't have to worry about getting stuck or anything like that. You know, it's just basically a combination of things. So I would say that, um, there are lots of shops out there and a lot of shops, like I'll have a class with, I don't know, 30 different shops in it. And I'll ask them, you know, how many of you guys would fix my Ford truck? And of course there's always some BMW shops in there and they're like, we wouldn't work on that. But pretty much everybody in the, in, in the class would fix my car. Most of them would probably buy their parts from someone like world pack or, uh, you know, CarQuest or Napa, one of the higher end, uh, suppliers, they wouldn't be buying junk parts out of China. And, uh, I kind of ask them, you know, why should I come to your shop as opposed to another shop? And I think that's, that's where we can take the advantage, uh, in our communities is that we offer something that's, that's different. It feels different. It, it acts different, um, tastes different, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, so let me, let me, uh, let me go, let me ask this question. How do you, uh, for your business define a premium? You know, how, what does that mean for you in your company when it comes to your clients? Uh, Andrew, I'm going to st start with you. What it means to me is basically it's the attitude you take and the time to look over the client's vehicle and treat them as if it was your vehicle. You know, my dad always said that, you know, when you bring a client in, you basically we're treating the vehicle as if it was our own, you know, we would, we preach what we do and, you know, we do our own brake flushes, our own vehicles, and we recommend customers clients do the brake flushes on their vehicles, you know? So, you know, basically it's, it's treating, I, I believe it's treating clients vehicles as if they were your own vehicles. You know, I don't want to get stuck and I don't want to have to change my ABS module or, my transmission because I didn't lack doing services that you should have done when you were changing your oil and doing your brakes and stuff like that. I've seen some shops in some shop vehicles. I, I wouldn't want my car treated like, right. um, I think living, living, you know, if you're going to sell something, you have to live it. Right. Um, I think that's, that's part of the persona probably. Uh, you have to believe in it. Um, I flush my brakes, or I should say Tom flushes my brakes, and and uh, uh, Tom flushes my transmissions and my, you know, my cooling systems and, and puts air filters and, you know, whatever else needs to be done uh, because I want my truck to last forever. Um, until the day I decide I don't want it anymore, I want it to be perfect. Um, Ke Kelly, how, how do you define premium service for yourself and for your employees? Well, so um, just thinking about how to how to phrase this. Um, to me, it's basically that the the product that we that we sell. It's it's not the fact that we that we can fix a car, right? It's, it's like everybody every repair shop. The expectation is that you're going to fix the problem that they have. You know, they they're they're coming in with that expectation. But what we try to focus on is. Um, you know, the things that are most valuable to people, which is time and trust. And so we try to figure out how to give people more time and figure out how to develop a relationship that builds trust. And then everything else is just secondary to that. Um, you know, people want to do business with people. And if, if we are premium people and we focus on building, you know, premium relationships, so to speak, then, you know, the business comes alongside it, right? Does, um, does premium pricing uh, in some way define a premium product? Um, could, is that directed to me? Can I go? Anybody can answer that, but yeah, well, go I ahead. Mean, I think, I think to, to an extent. Yeah. I mean, I don't think just because you're expensive, it doesn't mean that you're premium. Um, but I think in order to offer a lot of premium services, you know, in order to have a really nice facility and the best equipment and the best techs and, highly trained advisors and, um, 
everything that goes along with offering a premium product, then you are, you have to charge more money in order to maintain margin. But that's, you know, I don't think that just pricing defines premium. I think that it's just a byproduct of having a premium product. Okay. Okay. Um, Tom, would you answer that question for me also? On pricing? Yeah. Does premium pricing, uh, is it in part defining a premium product? I wouldn't say it's defining, but it's something you definitely want to keep in mind. Um, pricing can do two things. Uh, if you're if you're the highest price around, um, you just need to make sure that you are providing that value. You know, uh, you've got to go above and beyond with every experience that customers having to to show them the value of why you're why they're paying you a a certain price. And if you're too little, you know, I have a feeling that, uh, you know, a lot of our customers are like-minded to UC. So I think if my prices were too low, there's a lot of our customers that uh, a lot of our favorite customers are really good business-minded folks. And they know that if you're doing a, if you're the cheapest in town, that you've got to be cutting the corner somewhere. You know, you've either got to not be paying yourself, not paying your employees, right? Or you're using a a, a non-quality part. So I think pricing... I don't think necessarily on the top end really defines value too much, but I think you can hurt your value by having too low a pricing. That's kind of my opinion on that. I had a shop, a uh, Mercedes shop. In one of my classes, I won't, I won't name the place because it might point out who it might be, but um, they talked about their business going kind of downhill over a period of, uh, you know, six months or so. And they were having a hard time chasing clients into their shop and, the labor rate for the shops that were in the class on average was probably around 120 to about 130. And this shop had a $79 labor rate as a Mercedes shop. And I, th I think that their pricing was one of the things that was kind of holding them back. Um, Cause someone driving a Mercedes was probably unlikely to go to the least expensive shop in town and take their Mercedes in. Um, Andrew, they say that, you know, they talk about different, um, different customer bases, different, uh, different types of people out there. Are there enough clients out there that want a, a premium product that it makes it worthwhile to be the person that provides that? Uh, I believe there is. Um, I believe it just takes time and, you know, marketing and, and being able to have your service writer uh, vet your customers at the desk. You know, you want to be able to make sure they understand and they see the value that you're providing them. Um, and if they don't, then it's time to let them go. Um, and that's one of the better things about being a premier, uh, offering premium service. You don't have time to spend on customers that don't, that don't see your value. They don't want to, they don't want to do the services that you recommend and stuff like that. But I do believe that, that there's a lot of clients out there that, that want that because, you know, you know, they're just tired of being taken advantage of at the dealership and they, they see value in, in taking care of their car and protecting their investment. Okay. Um, Kelly, what are some, what are some things that set apart um, a premium service from say a standard service? Um, I touched on some of them earlier, but I mean, I think, you know, just from the beginning, you have to you have you have to have um, a good a good presence, like a good um, a good appearance. You know, and that's that's like how do you how do you look on the web? Like, what are your what do your reviews look like? Um, and then, what does your facility look like? How do your guys present themselves? Um, you know, do they do they look clean cut? Are they professional? Do they act like professionals? Um, you know, and then that goes into the quality of work and how you treat their car. And if you're washing it when you're finished with it and it delivering something back to the customer better than it was before, and then standing behind your work and then offering all the, you know, the amenities while you're there, like um, either a, uh, loaner cars or rentals or towing service or shuttle service or something like that to, to help make their visit more painless and, like everything contributes to uh, a premium experience. A lot of 
shop owners today are, are very concerned about parts pricing uh, because parts pricing is so visible on the web. Um, and if I'm going to have a premium service, I'm probably going to be more expensive than the guy down the street. Um, what would you tell one of the shop owners? Uh, we'll start with Tom, you know, uh, in regards to pricing, because, you know, Utah is notoriously cheap in my, in my view, having, you know, lived there for years. Um, and yet, Tom, you, you not only supply a, a premium service to your, to your area, but you have lots of customers flocking to your business. Uh, and in fact, my data would show that the higher end shops are probably more consistently busy than the, the lower end shops, the ones without the premium service. So, you know, what would you tell um, these other shop owners uh, when they're so concerned about uh, pricing and the visibility of, of especially parts pricing on the, on the web? Yeah, it... Uh... Shop owners are the ones that are concerned about pricing the most. Like customers, customers really aren't concerned about price. I mean, yeah, you get a lot of price questions uh, because people got, are doing their due diligence to make sure you're going to provide the value that they need. But, but in the end, actually, every time I raise my prices, I get busier. Um, I know just in the just in the city that my shop's in, uh, there's seventy thousand people in this city now. And so I don't know how many vehicles that would be. Uh, you know, the average household has so many, but I myself can only work on a service about 3,000 customers a year. I can't service 70,000 customers a year. My, actually, that's, that's 3,000 cars. That's not even customers. So needless to say, there's enough people out there that care about about seven other things before it gets to price where you don't need to worry about the the one out of 20 customers that's only a price only shopper. So uh, my advice to shop owners would be to quit focusing on price, focus on what you're actually delivering, uh, take care of yourself, take care of your team. And then the rest kind of all falls into place. And as far as like shopping around for parts, I actually purposely tell my suppliers to quit giving me discounts on parts because I run them through a matrix, right? So if I buy a part for $4 less or $5 less, then it goes through the, the matrix, I'm actually capturing less less profit. So for my suppliers, I tell them, hey, I tell you what, instead of continuing to discount my pricing as I build you know, volume with you, how about we look at rebates so it goes straight into the bank account, or uh, how about you just deliver to me uh, faster than anybody else in my area and kind of use my leverage that way rather than uh, continuing to drive down price. So. Give me premium service, um, charge me for it so that I can give premium service to my clients. Yeah. Get a, um, get a, get a truck off my rack 15 minutes earlier every yeah. single day. And that adds up to way more than that $5. You, you're all stressing about on a damn filter or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel that some shops that worry about price don't really value themselves though. I mean, some shops that are constantly trying to give the customer, the better dealer are cheating their techs and cheating their part suppliers by shopping around and going for the cheapest brake pads and the cheapest builders and stuff like that. And then they end up shooting themselves in the foot because then the car comes back and they have to warranty the parts and stuff like that. So I feel like that's not a very good thing to do. You know, just be honest and this is the price, you know, this is what it takes to do the job correctly. I think, um, you know, I, uh, from Tom, he had a client come in. I remember you talking about this guy who was a track guy and, uh, you know, had to do work in the shop because he couldn't do it in the time frame, and the price was higher. And, and Tom, I don't know if you want to tell that briefly, tell that story. Um, that's a, that's really a pretty good story. Um, and maybe yeah, it was a, yeah, it was definitely a do it, de definitely a do it yourself for BMW, younger guy, BMW did the little, uh, you know, rally street racing. I, I, I don't really work on a lot of the, of uh, that kind of scene, but, uh, definitely a do it yourself for was pretty qualified too, you know, but he needed a steering rack and a couple hoses and stuff and just flat out didn't have time to do it to pass the inspection he needed to enter a race. So he knew, he knew pricing off of, Amazons and rock autos and all those, uh, all those people coming into our field that make us field 
a few extra price calls than we did in the past. But um, honestly, just with him and everybody that, that asked me about parts, you know, uh, yeah, Mr. Customer, I understand you can go and buy your steering rack for $300 yourself, and I'm charging you, you know, 700 or 600 I can't remember where it fit the fit the matrix and I just explained to them why you know I I I I talk directly with my customers just like I talk with you folks I I shoot them straight of why I have to charge this in labor and this is how much profit I have to make on parts and uh, it's because you know I got to spend 25% of every dollar that comes in on my expenses I got to spend another 11% to pay these friendly faces that are standing here at the counter uh, I have to spend another 5% so I get enough of you to come and see me uh, every year and so on and so forth. So I just show them that, hey, I know even though you're spending $1,000 with me, I promise you I'm not putting that $1,000 in my pocket. But if everything goes well, I am going to put $150 of that in my pocket and save it so that I can invest in uh, my Uncle Sam fees and uh, my new hoists and all that the following year. And as long as every time I've I'm straight up with a customer explain why I have to charge why I charge. They they always leave understanding and majority of the time they they leave, you know, buying whatever we have to offer. And if they don't, at least we leave on good terms and they understand that I'm not just making up prices because I'm trying to get rich off of every every single transaction, because that's not the case, right? I'm sure that um customers don't fully understand the pricing and how it relates to my profits. Uh, I don't know that I want to explain to every customer, nor do I need to, but I think if I have to, I should be able to. And uh, I think if I have a customer in front of me that doesn't want me to make a legitimate profit, it's probably not my customer, right? Um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit maybe about something Andrew said. Um, you know, I, I always thought that our industry was full of, uh, in a way, misfits, uh, uh, I know when my father was growing up, he, uh, I believe, had dyslexia. It was it went undiagnosed. Um, he didn't do well in class, sitting in a class, so they funneled him into automotive. And I think that probably at least through about the 90s that that happened pretty regularly. If you were someone who didn't sit well in class, didn't do well in some of the normal stuff, they funneled you into automotive or shop or one of the trades. And so I think we have kind of an inordinate number of people that have ADHD or uh, dyslexia kind of in our industry. And they kind of feel like they don't have the value that they really do. Um, how do you offer uh, premium service when you feel like you, you don't have that value? Or is it even possible, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what would you, you know, what would you say, Andrew, to those those guys out there? I mean, I, I've got a couple of college degrees, um, so yay, I'm smart. Uh, but, you know, the stuff I learned in college is, is minuscule compared to the 40 years of being in the automotive industry and the stuff I learned in the business, you know, doing the business, uh, working, learning, reading, studying, um, being a technician, being a service advisor. So what would you say to those guys who are just really struggling with their own um, self-worth so that they don't even believe that, frankly, they should be $120 an hour uh, or whatever? What would I say? Um, to, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't – what I would say is they, they need to attend your class because, to be honest with you, and I'm going to be totally honest, there was a point five years ago before I – before we knew you, my father and I, and we were hovering at $95 an hour and we were fighting, you know, we weren't fighting with people, but we struggled to get the right customer into the door. And we attended your class and we, we understood about raising our labor rate and really educating customers about the value that we offer, you know, we offer our clients. And that's what really put us on the, on the straight and narrow path, you know? And I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is to raise your labor rate and start, you know, Start get rid of get rid of the bottom feeders. You know, start off with the right clientele that really value that really value the service. But if you don't if you don't believe it, you're never going to be able to sell it. That's what I would say. You have to start from square one and believe what you're selling. I think there's 
I think there's so many shop owners that they're just so afraid of the guy down the street and what the guy down the street is offering. Um, I don't know. Um, for me, it's really difficult because I see 130 shops and, and I see that the shops that have the higher labor rates that, that offer, you know, um, they're better dressed, their offices look better, their, their marketing is better, uh, their people are happier, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're just a, a, a more successful business, mostly. I'm not saying that there aren't a couple of guys that probably fail, but in, in, in general, the guys that I see that are, are, are higher priced um, have happier customers and, and happier staff. Um, what would you say, um, uh, Kelly, to, to these guys that are afraid of the guy down the street? You got, we, we have three clients within 20 miles of your shop and you're one of them. Um, you know, what would you say to the guy down the street who's worried about the other guy? I mean, there, there's, there's thousands and thousands of, of cars out there. I mean, and even my, just in my neighborhood, we have uh, a lot of, I don't want to say competing, but there's, there's good shops that work on the same cars that we work on. But I think focusing on somebody else and what they do is just like looking in the rearview mirror. You're, if you're always worried about what's beside you, then you, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get ahead. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I know all the other shop owners in the area We're we're cool, but we all have, we all have, we have different businesses. You know, we have, we, we do the same thing, but I mean, how we do it is different. And so I don't think that we even have comparable products because what I, what I offer is it's just, it's a different experience than what somebody else does. I'm not saying that they're like, I'm better or theirs is better. It's just, you know, we, we all embrace who we are and, you know, we sell ourselves through our products and that's all that anybody can do because you, you, you can't be somebody else as good as they can be. You can only be yourself as good as you can be. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick break for a commercial. Uh, August the 17th and 18th. Um, August. Are we in August? Yes. This weekend, uh, a company culture class, class, uh, in uh, Ogden, Utah, at the Institute. Um, if you uh, want to work on culture, culture in your company, I think culture is one of the things that defines premium. Uh, uh, we have a class. Uh, we'd love to see you there. We still have a couple of seats left. Uh, you can uh, go on ifrave.com uh, forward slash classes, or you can send an email to institute at ifrave.com, and we'll get you signed up. Love to have you there. Um, Tom, the 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 uh, the idea that my product is unique and that and that we're unique and we're not really concerned about what anybody else or what they do is that is that something that becomes uh, important that that has helped you get where you are in your company? Yeah, I would say that's a big, big part of it. You know, self confidence is uh, is what it takes. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to love your product, love yourself, to, in order to uh, to offer it to somebody else. So, as a business owner, I've got to lead a team. So, I got to be so confident in in uh, my vision and where we're going and what we're doing and what we're offering to get a whole team to follow me down that same path. And then they've got to be so confident about it that uh, my customers buy in as well. It can't be can't be fake. People are too smart, uh, so you 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 can only fake so much. But when it comes down to the importance of uh, of who you are, people do business with uh, people they know, like, and trust. Uh, so you've got to be you got to be legit in my eyes. So starts at the top. You got to believe in yourself, believe in your shop, and believe in your team. And then your your team can move forward, carrying on that same vision for you. Now, all three of you have gone through some transition in the past, say, five years. I know, Andrew, you said four or five years ago you went to class. I know, yeah. Tom, four or five years ago you signed up for the Institute program. And Kelly also um, has gone through some transition. He's an Institute guy. Um, uh, how difficult was it making that shift from where you were 
uh, to where you are and what were some of the key factors that led you to, um, I've got to do that. I want to start with Andrew. Um, Andrew, how, how, how difficult was that? I mean, you came to class, you, 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 you saw a different way to do things, and then you went back and made adjustments in your business. And I've seen some of your numbers. They're pretty darn amazing. Um, um, how difficult was the transition, not just for you, but for your staff, for the rest of the team? I wouldn't say it was very difficult. Uh, to be honest with you, it all, it all really focuses around it. Um, it all focuses around making some changes that you, that, that make you work towards running your company like a business. You're no longer working inside your, inside your business. You, you know, one of the things we learned was how we need to, we need to work on the business basically. Um, and that allowed us to raise our labor rate. And by doing that, we were able to get rid of some of the bottom feeders that you had called them, um, which allowed our business to really grow because we were no longer spending time with people who weren't spending any money here, which allowed us to spend more time with the clients that really helped us push the company forward to bring new, to bring better clients in and to bring better referrals in. And that's really, you know, what, I wouldn't say it was very difficult. I would just say it was, it was just a real eye opener that we weren't running the business like a business that we should have been doing. You know, that's what I would say. It, it, it must have been a bit scary, though, to to think um, I'm going to chase away some of these customers. Oh, yeah. And at this point in time, we're really not as profitable as we want to be. And yet, uh, you know, chasing some customers away, I'm being told that that's actually a good thing. Right. Because um, when you had mentioned that, you know, if you you have bottom feeders, we're like, well, we don't know about that. And then we went back the first week, the first week after being in your class, and we had like two pages of people that we were like, these are all bottom feeders. These are the people we need to get rid of. And by just simply raising the labor rate $15, we were able to cycle through some of them. And some of them actually weren't really bottom feeders. They were people that wanted to spend more money, but just weren't sure they wanted to spend money on their car. You know, we were going about it the wrong way, you know. But it definitely was scary to, to be getting rid of people and you weren't really bringing people in yet. So it definitely was scary that you were getting rid you were pushing people away when in your whole time, you're like, well, why would I want to push customers away? Well, you're spending time on them that, and they're not spending any money here, you know? So it definitely was a little scary then, but. I, I, I always teach that you, you need to constantly kind of be getting rid of the bottom 5%. Um, and you can't do that if you don't have marketing on right. the other side, if you're not bringing new people into your business. Of course. Um, certainly it's, it, it's not a great idea. There's a couple other things I want to get into a little bit, um, but I want to continue that, that kind of that same conversation. Kelly, I know that you made adjustments. Um, how difficult was it for your staff and what did you do for your staff that, that made kind of a difference that helped them, you know, kind of step it up? Well, I, I feel like my, my situation was a little different because I, I didn't, you know, when I started working with you, we weren't cheap. Like when I first started my shop, my buddy Ralph that owns Sarek Auto Work in Richmond said, hey, you know, you got to come to this class with me. So it was like the second week I was in business, went to a service advisor academy, came home when I had no clients, raised my labor rates and started matrixing all my parts, you know. And, and that was so immediately I was expensive when I started. And then I was like, I'm going to build the business the right way. But at that point, I wasn't offering a premium product, but I was charging a premium price. Um, and so I, you know, I had to learn why I wasn't like what I was doing. Cause I felt like I was delivering a good product. Um, but I wasn't cause I didn't, I didn't have a direction. And so I think, I think a big turning point was once we started to develop some culture, once we, once we came up with a vision for where we wanted the business to go and what we wanted to accomplish, then that helped put us all on the same track to, to deliver the same type of like buy-in and deliver the the premium product to people, which in turn, you know, took it from we're an expensive shop that, you know, isn't that great to we're an expensive shop, but we're an incredible value. You know, I mean, people don't even think about the price anymore. They say, oh, these guys, their prices are so reasonable because we got such a good product that like, it doesn't even matter how much I paid. Like, well, when, I you're getting, matters, when you're but. getting your car washed and loaner cars and the place looks fantastic and you're treated like you're a king or a queen every time you're in the shop, it's kind of hard to say, oh, it's, it's too expensive. Um, at least that's, that, that would be my opinion. 
Um, uh, Tom, I'd like I'd like you to answer the question because I've watched you in the last say five or six years. When we met, you were kind of uh, about ready to give the whole thing up, and 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 yet you've you, we just seen this uh, real transformation in the whole business. Uh, and over the last maybe two and a half years, you you've kind of you leave it to your staff, and and they mostly do what needs to be done, um, and make. 99% of the decision. So how, how did you get them from A to B where, you know, think about when you started, what that was like, and then, you know, what, what, what kind of advice might you give someone? Yeah. So for me, uh, for me, my staff is my, my, most of the staff that is with me now is the staff that was with me, you know, when I was ready to give it all up. Uh, and honestly, that's one of the that was my why. That's why I couldn't give it up. So they're just good folks. They they were ready to go. It was it was me holding them back. You know, I uh, I can uh, I could write a whole novel on how to teach you guys how to micromanage if you if you ever need to know how to do that. Uh, I was pretty good at that back in the day. But for me, uh, you know, I, I my first class with you almost uh, almost just gave me permission to do what I knew needed to be done. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was raised by my dad, which is probably the still the hardest working guy I know, and he's just a people pleaser. So we chased every dollar, like every dollar, every client. We took care of everybody, no matter what, even if they wouldn't let me win. So we did we did repairs, we did auto body, we would sell them a car, we would we would tow them with our own tow trucks. We did all the services because we were just driving sales. You know, we had a business doing you know, what, two, 2.1 million when I met you, yet we had zero dollars. And then the same thing, I thought every customer, I had to just do everything I could to save every cell, save every customer, so that I just, I, I just, I was always afraid to lose every little dollar. And then once I really started realizing that, okay, there's enough people out there that will allow, allow me to take care of them and allow me to make the, the margins I need to make, and I don't have to please every single person, although I still have to be nice to them. That's kind of where the transition came. It was just, it was just hectic. You know, I was trying to run a, I think we were 23 car a day car count. And there was me and an advisor, you know, touching 23 cars. Um, I'm running 14 and a half cars right now. And I've got uh, three advisors and a manager and me as a support guy. So just the whole, the whole going from a high car count low average repair order, low profit margins to flipping it, to going to a, a very low car count, a higher average repair order and a fair profit margin. The stress levels alone is just night and day. And then that that's where it started for me. And then that gave me time to reflect on what the heck I was doing, what I wanted, what I needed to do, and kind of started taking all the steps from there. But that's kind of a long answer for, I just kind of flipped the I flipped the model from a high car count, low ARO to a, a very low car count, high higher average repair order model to give us time to focus on all the other things that needed improvement. It's kind of interesting. We did a post because we're you know doing the social media thing, and and the post was uh, uh, gross profit dollars or gross profit margin, you know, um, and of course you know the internet's blowing up with the gross profit dollars guys and. And I think legitimately gross profit dollars is a really important number because it takes my margin and my sales and puts the two together and says, based on your sales and what your margins were, then you have these dollars to pay your bills. Um, I'm a kind of a gross profit margin guy because I think if I don't charge enough margin in the beginning, I don't, I don't have the dollars in the end. And, and, and I'm always a little frustrated with the people who don't seem to see that if their margins are too low, then they're going to have the high car count, low profit. I mean, they still make the same dollars, but they work like three times harder for it. And there are additional costs that come along with that. Um, as, as a guy that went from that uh, to a different model, Tom, how much better is life today than it was then, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a must. Like this, uh, this place was just absolutely killing me and my whole family to where 
night night and day difference. Uh, I didn't even uh, I didn't even like to hang out with me five years ago. You know what I mean? So yeah. so no, now it's uh, uh, you can call it absentee or whatever. I, I come in every day because I love it here. But nice. honestly, I could not show up. Uh, I could disappear for the next three weeks, and exactly. I would come back. And honestly, I would probably have way more money than if I if I stayed. So I try to keep myself out of the out of the way because I've got teammates in place just doing things. So being able to do something because you want to do it rather than because you have to do it is just a it's just a life changing experience. So. You know, it's it, um, one of the things as someone who because I take my car to Tom, uh, they're close by. If some of you other guys were close by, I'd probably take my car there, but. Um, and I pay more money, um, no, knowing I pay more money because I know Tom's one of the hiring guys because I'm the one that told him raise your labor rates. <laughs> um, I should have told him don't raise your labor rates, but then he wouldn't be in business. Um, you know, I've had a couple of times where things didn't go quite right and your staff really just jumped in and took care of whatever the issue was. There was no, you know, I, I, I had a battery issue, which had nothing to do with you guys, but I showed up at your shop at like 7, 10 in the morning. Uh, Lisa happened to be there. She let me in, got me a battery immediately. Uh, you know, before, before 7, 25, I was, I was headed home with a battery to put in my truck. Um, and, and just kind of like, wow, kind of service, right? I mean, I've, I've experienced that more than once. And, and I, I, I couldn't even think of, you know, I've taken my car to a couple. Of, I, I took my truck into um, uh, a, a local tire store because they had the tires I wanted. Uh, this is probably four years ago, and um, and uh, I asked them to align it, put tires on it, check it over, service it, and let me know what else it might need. And I had to call them back three times. And when I went to pick up my truck at like five o'clock, and only because I called them to find out where the truck was they hadn't aligned it they said the alignment was close enough uh they did put the tires on it they did service it but they didn't fill out an inspection sheet they didn't even look at the truck and when i when i kind of you know handed the guy the inspection sheet back and said you know wait a minute this doesn't do me any good there's nothing on here he goes oh you only have forty-three thousand miles there's probably nothing wrong with your truck like like it, it didn't matter right um and, and, and the service that I've gotten from your staff is so opposite uh, uh, to that. Uh, I couldn't even think of ever going back to this other place um, unless I was literally, my engine blew up right there or I had a flat right there that I had them fix a flat, right? Um, I think if my engine blowed up, I'd actually call you and say, come get my truck. Um, how do you deal with pricing in relation to uh, delivering this service. How do you build that value for your clients? Because I think each one of you are probably, if not the highest guy in your neighborhood, you're towards the top of that. So, Andrew, how do you deal with pricing uh, uh, with your clients and, and building value and, and or price questions? That all starts and ends with the service advisor. I mean, my father does a great job um, educating the, the our clients on what what's going to be done and what needs to be done and educating them about their car. And at the end of the day, we, we go above and beyond for our clients and our main goal is to make sure they don't get stuck. I mean, we want to protect your investment and make sure that you don't have any issues. We don't want a phone call saying you're stuck taking your kid to college. We want to make sure you go up and get down without a problem. And that's basically, you know, what we're after. But I think a lot of that all stems from, that all stems from at the service advisor, you know, educating and, 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 you know, really, really pushing the customers to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. I have a whole, um, in our service advisor training program, we have an, a, a year long program. Um, I have this whole thing about the service advisor being confident in the product and confident in our pricing and what we're charging and, and how that relates to what we deliver to our clients. And I, I believe that if they're not confident in our product, that they have a hard time selling it, especially at the price that we ask them to sell it at. Right. Um, how do you, uh, uh, um, uh, Andrew, how do you build confidence in your service advisor? Is that just cause it's your dad? I mean, if it wasn't your dad, how would you help them have confidence? You're, 
you can't help them have confidence. They have to have it on their own. They have to understand the value of what we're doing. I mean, they have to believe what we're selling. They have to believe in servicing their own vehicle, making sure that they're taking care of their own vehicle correctly. Because it's what Tom and Kelly said. If if you don't believe what you're selling, your customers and your clients are never going to believe it. You know, and that's, I don't, I don't believe you can't take someone who doesn't want to sell something to somebody and, and make them sell to somebody. If, if you believe what you're selling, you can, you can do it, you know? So I don't know if I answered your question the right way. I'd be excited about my product. Um, right. And I think there are things I can do as a shop for my staff to be excited about my product. I'll, I'll pick on Kelly a little bit here. Um, I know when I first came into Kelly's shop, I was very critical about the condition of the shop. And I probably was critical with Tom too. Um, although I don't think I was quite as critical as I might've been uh, uh, in Kelly's situation. Kelly, do you think that the changes that you made in the shop itself um, gave your people more confidence in your product and, and the fact that you were a premium business? To an extent, yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, I, I think I think a lot goes into it, but yeah, the appearance. You know, when you when you can walk in and you're you know you're proud of you're representing your product like your business and your personal physical appearance, the facilities, the equipment, that's all a reflection of, you know, of what you're doing. And, um, and so I think that that helps build confidence, but, you know, I think more so than just that, because not everybody is going to have uh, a facility that is multi-millions of dollars and can look really incredible. I, I think that is to build that confidence, you have to be just sourcing the best parts and you have to have the best people to install them. And, you know, and that, you know, that's where I saw that's especially a, a change in, in our service advisor. Um, when you, I gave them, well, of course, having a good facility attracted good technicians. But then once you have good technicians in place and whenever they recommend something, it's the right repair and they do it well and the cars don't come back, then you know, your service advisor is going to be like, yeah, okay, Mike and Nathan know what they're talking about. Um, I have no problem selling this. And I know that there's not a better person to fix this car than these two guys. So that's, so that, that that confidence that you have in your staff, that confidence um, creates premium in a way, right? Yeah. Uh, because I don't think you can deliver um, what we would call a premium service if you don't believe in your staff. You're always holding back, right, uh, uh, in some way. Um, well, it's got to work together, I mean, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the we we definitely had we, – we've had our struggles, and we've had, you know, we've had technicians who've made a lot of mistakes and have diagnosed things incorrectly and stuff like that, and every – you know, my service advisor um, has been with me for a long time and he would straight up say, I can't sell this because I don't think it's the right fix. You know, and I'm like, well, he's the technician. He's like, yeah, but he's misdiagnosed this car three times already. I have no confidence in this repair. And that's like, okay, well, that's on me because I have somebody that's inexperienced that shouldn't be doing this job in that role. You know, um, we, you know, our team should never give each other the impression that, that we're recommending the wrong thing or we don't know what we're doing. And if that's the problem that training can't fix, then, you know, that's a personnel change. So not yet. <laughs> One more time. <laughs> um, soon. Uh, um, uh, uh, Tom, I, I, I know your facility was in pretty good shape, but you've also, you've kind of reinvested in it. You spent more money, um, you know, cleaning it up and, and changing some of the things in it. Why, why do that when you were already, you know, you were already 90% of the way there. Why spend so much on the other 10%? Well, you don't, you don't get a second chance at a first impression. So every, when, so when you first start going to class or hire a coach or go through a program, there's so many big changes you can make that you, that just make life-changing, you know, uh, uh, advances in, in, in your business. And then 
once you once you dial things in, you know, it's easy to get the first 90%. And then that last 10% is in little tiny half a percent changes at a time. So if uh, you got to just like a service advisor's job. So the service advisors, in my opinion, have the hardest job that I've ever seen. I've done every job in the, in a shop from sweeping the floor to owning the place. The advisor job is the is the hardest job. And so my number one goal is to set everybody up on my team with the tools and the resources they need to win. So does your advisor have a better chance of winning over trust with a customer if they have to step over a pile of parts or if they have to be nervous to grab onto the door handle to come in or you know if a dog jumps up and sniffs them when they walk in the office does my advisor have as good a chance of winning the trust of that customer handing over the keys to their forty thousand dollar pickup or would i have a better chance of them walking into a nice clean uh, nicely lit office uh that's you know decorated by my wife with nice smiling faces you know what i mean uh, the latter is the answer. So you just got to do little things, little improvements that just help build that trust because it does make a difference. You know, I can't remember how many seconds you've got that people judge you, but it's not, I think it's about two, three steps in the door and they've already got an idea of how that transaction is going to go. So this, the statistics say that it takes four and a half seconds for someone to decide whether or not they will do business with you. I don't, I don't think that's how much money they'll spend, but it's, I could be comfortable here. I could do business here. Yeah. And uh, I, it, when I'm teaching marketing, one of the, I, I think people don't understand marketing. They don't understand that it really is literally everything from the way the building looks outside, inside, the way people greet you, the phone, the, the internet, um, you know, just literally you're pricing the whole, the whole thing. <clears throat> I always say my marketing is designed to do two things. Uh, first, it, I, I want it to attract the the customer that I want to attract. And so if I think about, you know, someone that's looking for a premium service, how do I, how do I make that stand out soda for my business um, uh, sort of, and then uh, second, it's actually designed sometimes to have somebody go, this is not a place that I think I would be comfortable doing business with. Um, you know, do I really want the, the, the lower end customer coming in the shop who's going to, they're a nice person. I'm not saying they're not good people or nice people, but do I really want them coming in and spending 30 minutes of our time arguing about a $20 price difference um, uh, in what somebody else down the street might do and and whether or not they have our warranties or they use our, our, our quality parts or they stand behind it the way we do or whatever that is. Um, I always felt when someone walked into my shop and looked around and went, wow, I don't think I can afford this place, that that was a good, that was a good reaction, as long as I didn't have too many people having that reaction. Um, uh, can, I, can I just add something to that? Please. I want to tell a story. Um, because the thing that you said, just in the last two weeks, two things happened. One, a guy walked in to ask about us working on his Volkswagen. When I greeted him at the door, he looked around and said, I probably can't afford this place. And I said, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, I mean, we're, you know, told him all the values of us. He was like, well, it sounds great. I hope I can bring my car here one day, you know? And I was like, okay, well, you know, let me know when you're ready. Um, and then another one, um, a, a customer that had come in, I helped him pick up the car after hours, but Adi had had the initial conversation with him. And so when he was picking up his car, he was like, are you, you know, are you the owner? And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, from the time I walked in, I just wanted to say, like, everybody was extremely professional looking. I mean, your technicians are wearing polos tucked in. You know, the shop is polished floors. Everything is organized and clean. He's like, you just, you look like a top-notch facility. And the guy spent $7,000 on his Mercedes without, like, blinking about it, you know? And and it was all, well, I mean, I'm sure more went into it than just first impressions, but that's what he brought up to me specifically when you pick the vehicle up. So I think it's extremely important. Isn't it wonderful when you can have someone spend seven, $8,000 and thank you for taking their money. I mean, you know, for doing what you do. Um, all right. We're, we're running out of time. We're getting towards the end. we got about six minutes left. Um, what are some simple things that you would tell uh, the other shop owners that would be listening here that they could do to kind of increase their, their value? 
uh, to step up their service a bit. Simple, easy things. Um, let's uh, uh, let's start with you, Andrew. What what would you give me one or two for the shop owners that are out there? One or two things that would increase their value would be. Um, I would say um, make sure make sure your team has, shares the same vision as you do. I mean, if, if like you said before, if if they don't believe what you're doing, then you need to work on addressing your team and make sure you're all on the same page. You want to make sure that everybody's paying attention to the details and making sure the car is going out perfect and the best. You're putting out the best product you can. Um, and then I think I think one of the most important things is to realize that that price is not the most important thing. I mean, you know, it's, it, it all comes down to value and culture. I mean, if, if, if your if your marketing is not set up correctly and you're bringing in the wrong customers, you're going to be, you're, you're not setting yourself up for, for a win, you know? So. I find it interesting that, you know, I, I asked you for a couple of things and the first thing you go to is culture uh, amongst your staff. I love that. I mean, I'm yeah. so excited that, that that's what you said. Um, instead of raise your price a little or, you know, clean your front room. Um, but, but I, I, I absolutely 100% agree that, you know, get all your people on the same page, that they want to deliver that premium service to the client and help them define what that is. Right, because when um, everybody has a positive attitude, any, any, the, the sky's the limits. You know, my father always said, I could, te I could teach someone who doesn't know how to fix cars as long as they have a positive attitude. And I've seen that work so many times. I mean, he's taken people that as long as they had a positive attitude, He's helped them learn how to fix cars and be successful. We, we hire for fit and not for education. Right. Um, we can educate people. We just can't make them fit. Yeah. My uh, dad always said positive attitude wins. <laughs> yeah, it, it always does. Um, uh, Kelly, what would you tell uh, the shop owners out there that would help them increase their, their value? Well, um, I mean, culture, I think, is going to be one of the more important things, but since that's going into your class you're talking about this weekend. Um, I would just, I would say first impressions, um, you know, make your first impression strong and make sure your website's good make sure that when people, you know, look at you online, it's like, all right, that, that place looks legit. I want to check it out. And then when they walk in the door, make sure that the place looks like somebody somewhere that they want to be. Um, and you don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to renovate anything. Just go around and take a picture of every light fixture, take a picture of every corner of the shop, and just look at it and ask yourself if it looks good or not. Um, if it doesn't, just clean it up. Change the light bulbs, like easy stuff like that. And it makes, coming from experience, makes a world of difference in the way that your shop looks. I mean. I think when your and, employees also see you making those minor changes, even though they're small things, that, you know, I want this shop to really stand out so i'm going to change this light or i'm going to make sure that that door gets wiped off and that there's no fingerprints on it um you know when you're allowing that stuff to happen you're kind of sending a message to your employees that those things are not important to you so i mean and then and then that even that even ties back into the culture like everybody wants to be in this clean workspace and you know i have guys they drop they drop oil on the ground or something, and they're immediately grabbing the floor cleaner, cleaning the whole area. You know, it's like it's not. Oh, we'll let that sit there for a day. Like, no, nah, they take care of it immediately, so that shop's always clean. Because everybody wants to be in a clean shop. Yeah, because otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. I'd get them. Um, uh, Tom, you you got the last word. So, what what would you tell the shop owners? Shop owners, I think that the value is going to come from uh, from your team. So I, I I firmly believe in treating your team like gold because they are, and uh, in return they treat your customers like gold. So, and how you do that? Uh, make sure you're celebrating the wins often enough. Uh, as shop owners, we have a tendency to kind of focus in on what didn't go quite right. So if you focus in on some wins, like say uh, a good example to to kind of show your team how valuable you are like i strongly feel like cecil and everybody comes in my shop damn they they're getting one hell of a deal for what what little i charge and what i offer they're getting a good deal so celebrate some wins customer comes in thinking they need some big repair and you die your guy diagnoses it and it's something easy 
make sure you celebrate that. Like, gosh, you know, that's why we're so good, guys, is because this is our customer forever because they came in here thinking they needed four grand worth of repairs and they're leaving for 800 bucks. Dang, we're good. You know what I mean? So uh, celebrate those things and uh, celebrate them with your team often in front of the team. And uh, that's when the magic starts happening. Customers, customers can sense that when you got a happy team. I think celebrating is is important, and I think that uh, we need more wins, and and that we're not, as an industry, really good about talking about that. And we need to be talking about that with our staff. There's so many good things going on in the, in, in a typical shop. Yeah, there's a lot of problems, a lot of things we could fix, but um, you know, begin by by making the people happy. Guys, I want to thank you for uh, uh, being online twice uh, uh, for this meeting and and coming back. We certainly appreciate uh, all of your input, um, uh, uh, Kelly, uh, Andrew, and Tom. Uh, thanks again uh, for your help with the industry and 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 being the leaders in the industry. Our next topic in one week on Wednesday, uh, same bat time, uh, is going to talk about uh, the cost of training and is it worth doing. And we're going to look at some actual statistical data uh, behind the benefits of training and educating your team. Uh, uh, once again, guys, thank you so much. Uh, everyone have a great day. If you need anything, uh, please don't hesitate to send us an email or get on Facebook and ask a question. Take care. Subscribe at institutesleadingedge.podbean.com so you don't miss out. Or find us on Spotify and iTunes at The Leading Edge. Join the Institute group on Facebook and get advice from other top shop owners as well as our experienced consultants. Brought to you by the Institute for Automotive Business Excellence. Thanks for listening.